Four times a year, I'm going to preach on financial stewardship intentionally on purpose. Sometimes maybe as I'm going through a book of the Bible, I'll fall into a passage like that. But four times a year on purpose, we're going to teach on financial stewardship. Preaching on finances in the church is not a bad thing. Ever, 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 ever. It's a good thing. Jesus talked about it a lot. We get that. I want you to be on board for these messages because even if you're giving, this message is going to apply to you. If you're struggling with giving, inconsistent in giving, not bought into giving, this message will speak to you as well. Um, But when we talk about money, there's no one exempt. No one. I want you to imagine two men. Would you do that? They're both at the same bank. Two men at the same bank. One is inside of the bank, sitting in the office of a loan officer. The other is outside at the corner of the bank's parking lot, leaning up against a stop sign. There's an obvious difference, several differences between the two men. One is wearing a nice business casual outfit. The other's wearing dirty clothes with holes in them. One drove himself to the bank in his $80,000 vehicle. The other walked to the bank parking lot. One is showing the loan officer his driver's license. The other is showing all the passerbys a piece of cardboard. One is well respected by everyone he passes in the bank lobby. The other isn't allowed to even walk into the bank lobby anymore. One is viewed by everybody in town as being rich. The other is viewed by everybody in town as being poor. These men are polar opposites. But they do have one thing in common. You know what it is? They're both asking for money. The rich man is asking the loan officer for money. The poor man is asking passerbys for money. They're different. But at the end of the day, they want the same thing. More money. Tonight we're going to preach on the pole of money in our life. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor or you're somewhere in between, no matter your economic status, the pull of money is real in your life. I said the pull of money is real in your life. The desire of money is not automatically a sin. That's not what I'm preaching on tonight. The desire for more money, for for more economic stability. That, that's not a sin in and of itself. I'm going to preach about the pull of money and the danger that pull has in our life. The author of Proverbs 30 is a man by the name of Agur. We don't know much about Agur other than he was the divinely inspired author of this one proverb. And in the verses we're going to study tonight, Agur prays for God to protect him from financial vanity. And in his prayer, Agur models the attitude and the approach that we should have toward money ourselves. Three verses, verses seven through nine. Agur writes, he prays rather, two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord 
or lest I be poor and still and take the name of my God in vain. Agur prays and say, God, remove from me vanity and lies. Then he prays, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, but food convenient for me. You put these requests together. They go hand in hand. It's a prayer about vanity and money. He's asking God to help him to not get caught up in financial money, to not fall victim to, to the dangerous pull that money would have on his life. Let's talk about what he said when he said, remove far from me vanity and lies. Vanity generally means emptiness. But more specifically in scripture, it can refer to this, a lack of substance to satisfy desire. So practically vanity is pursuing something that we think will satisfy our desire, but when we get it, it doesn't. What we thought would leave us full leaves us empty. That's vanity. Vanity, here's an object. It's tangible. Agar, I believe, is referring to the vanity of money. But I want you to notice that in the verse, he says, remove from me vanity and lies. If vanity is a lack of substance to satisfy desire, then lies is what draws us to vanity. Follow this. Lies is the commercial to vanity. Lies is the marketing of vanity. Lies is the promotion of vanity. I remember in Bible college in Oklahoma City, I worked at a clothing store called Men's Warehouse. Sold suits and ties and dress shoes and dress shirts to, to businessmen. And they hired guys like me to sell the clothes. But what I learned is they hired guys to market the clothes. Meaning a special guy from the headquarters in Dallas would come down to Oklahoma City and he would spend all day dressing these mannequins. A guy that was hired for this. He would adjust the mannequins just right. He would put them into uh, the 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 window open, uh, what, what do you call, what, what word am I looking for? The, huh? The display. display. The window display, that's right. And, and, and then what's amazing is he would work a long time on the lighting. And he would shine the lights at just the right direction so as to make the tie really pop. And the whole outfit to really come together with this idea that a businessman would be walking in front of our store, looking at that window display and see that tie popping in the light. And he would say, man, I got to have that. I fell prey to that often. <laughs> and I knew the trick, but I still fell prey to it. I, I would go home, put that tie that I saw on the mannequin under that special lighting. I would put that on, look at it in the mirror. I'm like, it doesn't pop. <laughs> Where's the pop? They hired a dude and paid him a lot of money to make the tie look better than it really was. Lighting lies. Lies that he's talking about here is the lighting to vanity. Lies represent whatever the devil uses to make money seem better than it really is. Sometimes the lie comes from another individual, directly or indirectly. Someone at work, Someone in your family, a friend who makes more money than you do, or at least lives like they do. They're always buying new stuff. They're always in a new vehicle. They have their kids in new clothes. They're going on nice vacations all the time. 
and you viewing their lifestyle, maybe even from a distance from like social media or something breeds within you this desire for more money because you're coming to believe by observing their life that if you could do more and have more and go more, it would make you happier. So they may not speak the lie directly into your life, but observing their life, it, it, it's kind of like the lighting the devil uses. Sometimes the lie comes from the voice of culture at large around us, through a song, through a reality TV show, uh, through the life of famous athletes, through the pressures from your own company or organization. Over time, you can come to believe that money is power and money is position and money is happiness and money is life. Sometimes the lie comes from within. It's called discontentment. And the devil uses this lie to convince us that we need more stuff and nicer stuff, bigger stuff and better stuff. Discontentment even leads us to believe that we deserve it. It's a lie from the devil. We don't deserve anything. The way we feel justified in our mind through discontentment is, is a powerful way of deceiving us. Because if the devil can get us to think that, that it's not just a want but a need, then he has shined the lights in just the right direction. If vanity represents money, lies represent whatever the devil uses to get us to believe that money can satisfy us. And by the way, he has a really good track record at using money to draw people's hearts away from God. Perfect example, the man who wrote the majority of these Proverbs. His life did not start pursuing money. He pursued wisdom. What do you want, Song of Solomon? The voice of God asked. He didn't say riches. He didn't say position or power or health. He said, I want wisdom and I want judgment and I want understanding and I want discernment. And because of the wisdom God gave him, wealth followed. By the way, if you want to be successful in life, stop asking for money. Ask for wisdom. Because most of the time God will use his wisdom and wealth will follow that. Don't get the two out of order. Solomon became wealthy because of his wisdom, but he, he didn't use wisdom to steward that wealth. And over time, that wealth became his life. Some lie that the devil used to trick him into thinking that he didn't have enough or that he wanted more caused him to pursue it until it destroyed him. Ecclesiastes 1-2 is his conclusion of that. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You get his idea? He said, I thought money would satisfy, but all I got to say one, two, three, four, five times is that it's vanity. It's empty. The devil's a good enough liar to convince even the wisest man in the world that money satisfies. He's sneaky enough to cause a man who had it all feel like he needed more. And Agur was wise enough to recognize that if the devil could trick Solomon into financial vanity, then the devil could trick him as well. And that's why he prays for God to remove the vanity of money and the lies that go with it. And he tells us why. He tells us why. He gives us the danger of having too much money and the danger of not having enough money. This is very interesting. Look at verse 8 and 9. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me a food convenient for me. Why? Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and take the name of my God in vain. He said there are two dangers associated with money. The danger of having too much and the danger of not having enough. Let's talk about both. The danger of being rich, according to verse 9, is that we become full and deny the Lord. 
Are you listening? In other words, we accumulate so much that we no longer need God. Apparently, Agur observed this happening in people's lives around them, and it still happens today. No, there were people who used to pray, and they used to rely on God for their provision. They they remember a day in their life where they had to save and steward their finances with a lot of caution. They couldn't go out to eat much, and they couldn't afford to, to take long or extravagant vacations. They struggled to afford the necessities for their own children, like glasses and dentist appointments and braces and new shoes and fees for their school and church activities. And they had to live paycheck to paycheck, and often the paycheck wasn't enough. So so especially toward the end of the month, they were in this continual posture of dependence upon God, and they've got stories how they prayed and God supplied and they prayed again and God supplied and they gave and God provided and 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 remaining in that posture actually was pretty easy staying on their knees was pretty easy because they just didn't have much it's either God sustains me or I die but at some point God prospered them and that there's nothing wrong with that they no longer have those times of financial hardship so, so they can pay all the bills and have money left over that's nice They can go out to eat and not even get stressed out about the price of their meal. The kids don't have to drink water. They can go further away for vacation and stay longer. They can take their kid or grandkid to a mall for back to school shopping and not even have to pray for a good deal to pop up. They don't have to ask God for money anymore. They have people asking them for money. And over time, it leads to a different posture. Not one of dependence, one of independence. It now becomes very hard to feel the need to pray anymore because they have everything they need and what they don't have, they go out and buy. What's happening? Money slowly draws them away from the Lord because money has a way of giving them a false sense of self-sufficiency. And it almost makes them feel like they're God. They don't deny the existence of God. They just begin to deny that they need God. Their money allows them to remain in such control of their life that they ignore God's leadership and authority in their life. Hear me, I want to be clear. This doesn't happen with everyone that God prospers. Thank the Lord we have people in our church that God has prospered and they worked hard and they stewarded well and they still put God first. And they still pray every day. And they still read their Bibles. And they still depend on Jesus. But it has happened to some, or Agur wouldn't have pointed it out. See, that's the danger that comes with having too much money. But that's only one side of the coin when it comes to financial vanity. There's another side of the coin. We give all the rich, rich people a bad rap. We don't talk about the poor people. We don't talk about the people that don't have enough money, because there's a danger when you get there too. See, verse 9 says that the danger of not having enough money is the temptation to steal. And in doing so, you profane the name of God. Apparently, Agur has seen people that get so poor that they have to steal in order to make ends meet. And that hurts their testimony and it hurts the cause of Christ. You see, here's where poverty often leads an individual so often. Here's where financial crisis leads us even in 2021 to desperation. And what do we say? Desperate times call for desperate measures. So instead of trusting God to meet their needs, they do whatever they have to do, even if it's ungodly, to get the money they feel like they have to get to meet their their needs. They cheat on their taxes. Stealing. They withhold their tithe, their missions commitment. Stealing. They get another job and work more shifts, no matter how much family time or church time they have to miss. Still away from their family. Still away from God's church. They lie in order to make another stale, stealing. 
They exaggerate on the time clock, stealing. And all the while they're justifying in their minds because they're saying, Pastor, I've got to take care of my family. Got to put food on the table, got to pay the bills. Or maybe they feel like they just have to maintain a certain lifestyle. And their intention in all of this, listen, is not to drift away from God or the things of God. They don't want that to happen, but it does. Slowly but surely, their priorities begin to change. Their values begin to shift. And their energy is being used primarily to make ends meet. You see, riches isn't the only thing that can lead to financial vanity and drifting away from God. Poverty, financial crisis can do the same thing. Because when we're in need, we often start worrying and taking control ourselves and obsessing over money. So we have to come to this conclusion. There are two kinds of people in this auditorium that could be struggling with financial vanity. There are those who are facing a time of financial crisis, their propensity would be to forsake God's priorities for their life in order to make ends meet. Stop praying, stop trusting, stop giving, stop serving, stop attending, stop putting God first, and they become their own God. Because they don't trust God to meet their needs. Then there are those who are experiencing financial success in here. Their propensity, I'm not saying they're doing it, but their propensity would be to get so comfortable being able to do whatever they want or buy whatever they want, fix any problem with their credit card, with their debit card, with their checking account, that they don't even get stressed out anymore. So they stop praying and they stop depending on God. So what's Agar praying? God, I don't want to be rich lest I get self-sufficient and deny you. But I don't want to be poor lest I get desperate and stop trusting you. And so God, here's what I'm praying. Feed me with food convenient for me. Some say this is a proverb that Jesus Christ referred to when he was teaching his disciples how to pray. Give me this day my, our daily bread. What it is is a prayer of daily commitment. Agar saying this, God, give me just enough. Agar saying this, knowing the dangers associated with the two extremes of being rich and being poor. I want to have just what I need. I want to have enough where I'm not tempted to get desperate and forsake godly priorities in order to meet my own needs. But I don't want to have so much that I'm tempted to get prideful and stop needing God as much in my life either. Agar's admitting God, watch your church. He's praying, God, you know me better than I know myself. Don't miss this. He's saying, I don't know at what point of prosperity that I'll be tempted to forsake you. And I don't know at what point of poverty I'll be tempted to stop trusting you. But you do and keep me from both. Now, some might read into this prayer and take away the wrong idea if you're not careful. Because some might think that we're supposed to pray for that nice, comfortable, middle income life. Not a huge house, but not a small one. Not a brand new car, but not an old one. Not the best of everything, but not the worst of everything. Some might even think after studying these verses that God is against a believer being wealthy and he's against a believer being poor. He's a middle income God. That couldn't be the case though. Because sometimes God allows believers to be rich. And sometimes God allows believers to be poor. And sometimes God allows believers to be right in the middle. So the verse could not be telling us that God prefers all of his children to fall in the same financial bracket. Or or to all live the same exact standard of living. Because in his sovereignty, he allows it all. Are you getting this? 
So then you've got to ask this question. Where's the wisdom found in these verses? Because Proverbs is the book of wisdom. When we read a verse in Proverbs, we've got to say, where is the wisdom for my everyday life? Watch here. Agur's wisdom is not found in the prayer itself. The prayer is not recorded so that we could copy it, hang it on our walls, memorize it, and pray every day word for word. And by the way, neither is the Lord's Prayer. Some call it the model prayer. And I don't mind if you do that. A lot of basketball teams will get together before they go on the court or in the locker room. They'll, they'll pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Great prayer to pray, but that's not really the idea behind it. And the idea here is not that we learn a new prayer, so now we get to go quote a new prayer. The wisdom is found in a couple of small details. Verse 8 says this, remove far from, what's that next word? He didn't pray for God to remove vanity from the students he was teaching. Who were they? Those, those guys with weird names in verse 1. Ithiel and Ukal, or Ukal. He didn't pray for God to remove the vanity from them or his wife or his kids or those he went to church with or those he worked with. He prayed for God to remove the vanity and lies associated with money from him. He recognized as wise as he was that he was personally prone to believing the lie that money can satisfy. He didn't come to a point where because he was an author of a divinely inspired proverb that he was now somehow exempt from this danger. He said it's a personal struggle. There's wisdom in that. And then he says this, it's a lifetime struggle. Verse 7, deny me them not before I die. Not only did Agar identify himself as prone to the pull of money, but he also identified financial vanity as being a lifetime struggle. So he asked the Lord to keep him safe from the vanity and lies of money his entire life. He didn't pridefully anticipate that he would get to a time in his life, either by life stage or spiritual maturity, where he wouldn't be pulled by money. This is where the wisdom of the Proverbs becomes clear. The emphasis is not on the prayer of Agur. It's on the humility of Agur. We aren't supposed to walk away from this passage with a new prayer to pray. We're supposed to walk away from this passage realizing we need to pray. Agur wasn't wise because of the words of his prayer. Agur was wise because he realized that he needed prayer. He even admitted up in verse 2 that he's more brutish than any man. That's humility. Brutish is a term they use to describe the behavior of animals. He's saying more so than anybody around me, I am more impulsive and instinctive like an animal with my money than even Ithiel and you call my students. What's the point? He had the humility to both admit it was a personal struggle and admit he would never outgrow this struggle. Here's the statement. Financial vanity is a lifelong danger that must be viewed with lifelong humility. That's the wisdom. Some believers struggle to have the wisdom of humility when it comes to money. They can so easily recognize how money destroys him and her, but they don't have the humility to admit how it can destroy them. And they never want to admit when it is destroying them. And it's that kind of pride about money that eventually leads them to the very same thing they said they would never do. 
And it's their pride that leaves them in that lie, justifying in their mind why it's okay to stay in that situation and keep spending money that way and keep pursuing that opportunity. So when their spouse confronts them with misplaced priorities, they're working too much, they get defensive. When confronted about not tithing, they get defensive. When confronted about lying how they spent the money, they get defensive. Confronted about going over budget, they get defensive. When confronted about not coming to church because they want to make more money with more jobs, they get defensive. When confronted about being impulsive with their money, they get defensive. Pride makes them vulnerable to number one, falling to financial vanity, but number two, staying in financial vanity. We need humility when it comes to money. I'm going to say this and I'm preaching it to myself. There's not a single one of you that is so good with money that it no longer has a pull on your life. I don't care what your savings account says. I don't care how many things you've paid off. I don't care how long you've been in this church. I don't care how much you've given to this church. You never outgrow the pull of money. Well, not me. I don't even have money. Oh, it's pulling on you too. There's a danger associated with not having enough money. You're not exempt just because you're not wealthy. In fact, not being wealthy leads to just as much danger. It's just a different temptation. Three statements and I'll be done. Number one, be honest with yourself about the pull of money in your life. Don't get overconfident. Well, we're out of debt. Well, good for you. I'm glad. That is biblical. But don't get overconfident. Don't get defensive. Don't get prideful. Don't think you'll somehow be an exception to the rule. The wisest man in the world, are you hearing me? The wisest man in the world wasn't an exception to this rule. So when you start to feel money pulling on you, and it's more than just wanting to take care of your family, it's more than just wanting to, to, to safely and wisely advance your economic status and stability, but not to the expense of your spiritual priorities. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when it's really pulling on you. You need to recognize it and admit it. Don't suppress it. Don't deny it. Don't justify it. Don't minimize it. Repent of it. I was visiting with a man in our church who started a business and, and experienced a lot of success from that business, way more than he tended to, to experience from that business. A ton of success that yielded a lot of financial stability in his life. And recently told me that, that even after so much financial success and it creating so much margin in their life, what the business did over time, though it gave them a lot of financial margin, it shrank all the rest of the margin in their life. So they had more money, but they didn't have more time. They, they had more money, but, but they lost time with their kids. They had more money, but they were overwhelmed after their eight to five job with another thing they had to do. Are you getting this? They had more money, but they came to church really, really tired. And so he came to the conclusion. They said, you know what? The only reason... I would keep this business going at this pace is because I like the financial margin. And he had to admit that it was the pull of money that would cause him to keep the business but give up other personal 
uh, priorities, spiritual priorities that the Lord says are a really big deal. And so wisely, after he admitted the pull of money in his life, he kind of slowed down the business so he could give attention to both. Listen to me. That's wisdom. Wisdom, not so much that he slowed down the business. That's not that's not the wisdom. The wisdom is that he saw he needed to. He admitted he admitted that it was pulling him away from what was most important. Statement two. Pray daily for God to protect you from the dangers associated with money. Can I ask you this question? Is this part of your prayer life? Have you ever asked God, give me food convenient for me? Give me this day my daily bread. Have you ever been honest enough with God to say, God, I have no idea at what point of prosperity that I'll be tempted to forsake you. And I have no idea at what point of poverty I'll be tempted to take matters into my own hands and forsake you. Because I don't know myself and you know me, would you keep me right in the middle? You're not asking for a middle income life. You're asking God for for the spot where you will be less tempted. And he knows you better than you know yourself. So pray for that. Statement three. Avoid decisions that make you vulnerable to financial vanity. Proverbs says, a prudent man foreseeth the evil and he hides himself. You know what that means? There's wisdom in seeing the dangers of certain financial decisions before you make them. Do not make a financial decision that requires you to be perfect with your money for a long length of time. Or else you're going to be desperate for more. Be careful about making a financial decision that relies on your life to go just right in order for you to make ends meet. You know why? Number one, you're never perfect with your money. Number two, life never goes perfect. So if you purchase something or lease something that eliminates all your financial margin, you're in trouble. You can't save your money. You can't invest into your retirement. You can't react to an emergency without putting it on a credit card. You're tempted to start tithing to make up your missions commitment later when you get your bills paid. If you eliminate your margin... Life has to go just right, and life doesn't go just right. That's not a wise way to live. It makes you vulnerable to financial vanity when you live your life constantly thinking about how to keep things from going wrong. Don't put yourself in those positions. Sometimes we can't help it. Sometimes we've got to make a career change that causes us to take a cut in pay, and we have to work our way to, to, to a better financial position. And sometimes it's very wise, and sometimes we understand the risk involved in that. But I'm talking about making very permanent financial decisions that, that require you to have a perfect financial record, or else you're going under. Be careful about that. And then let me close by, by talking to the parents. Be careful about conditioning your young person to love money more than God. Don't, don't let them put themselves in, in, into, into patterns of behavior that would breed in them a dependence upon money. What do you mean? Don't let your kids work during church. My mom and dad never let me work during church, and I never lost a job. I worked at the Golden Corral. Year and a half, never worked a Sunday, never worked a Wednesday. Then I worked at Walmart for two and a half years before I went to Oklahoma City. Never worked a Sunday, never worked a Wednesday. Three years working through Bible College, Men's Warehouse and iMart Express. Never worked a Wednesday, never worked a Sunday. I even had enough money to buy her a ring, 
even though I missed those two days. Shocker, I know. Why? Are you saying it's a, it's a sin to do that? I'm not saying it's a sin to do that. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you about that. I'm saying it's unwise to let your teenager do that. Because now you're conditioning in them a dependence upon work and money more than God. Be careful about that. There might come a time as an, as an adult when God calls them into a profession or a career that requires them to miss for that, and that's understandable. There are men and women that have shift work in our congregation and first responders in our congregation and others that go work for three weeks at a time on windmills and oil projects. I get all of that. But do teenagers need to do that? Is that wise for teenagers to do? It's not wise because you're conditioning in their heart a love for money. I'm just trying to, be, I'm just trying to help you. Be wise. And the truth is, if, you're, if your teenager works hard enough, they won't fire him for it. Financial vanity is a lifelong danger that must be viewed with lifelong humility. Here's what I want to do. I, did, you, did you hear that song that Jenny sang this morning? I was going to do an invitation like just the, the normal invitation. Um, but I had them be prepared just in case. For this song. And so I want you to come, Jen and Shelby. And I want you to listen to this song in light of this truth. I know we've been here 10 minutes longer than we normally stay on Wednesday. Take a deep breath. It's all right. Is it Sunday? Well, then we're 50 minutes early if it's Wednesday. You can come and pray. We're not going to stand. You can come and pray if you want to. Pray right there in your seat. I just want you to listen to Jenny's song through the lens of this prayer of anger. God, protect me from financial vanity. And this song, I think, is going to ring so loud and clear if you view it through that lens. You can even pray in your heart. Pray that prayer as Jenny's praying. No one is exempt from the pole of money, not a single one of us. She's going to sing a song called Broken Ladders. I think it'll help us.
fitting conclusion uh, to a very, very wise prayer that Agur prayed, and I hope that you will consider that this week. I hope that you'll make it a part of your daily uh, prayer time, uh, just a version, not word by word, but the heart of that prayer, the humility of that prayer, recognizing that money does indeed pull on you like it does anybody else. That's so good. Let's pray for a couple things. Um, be in prayer.